2: everyone, happy Friday and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV. Thank you for joining us and being with us through this tumultuous time in the industry. I'm Jensen Assey. I'm joined by Zach Seward and David Morris on this Friday afternoon. David, you are kicking us off. What do you got for us today?
3: Yeah, so I have a column that was out this week. It's a very complicated issue, obviously, but regarding the FTX collapse, As we look at the wreckage of what has happened, um, there are some very disturbing similarities to the way the fraud at Enron worked. And to keep it simple, there are basically two things that went on at FTX and Alameda. One is that because FTX and Alameda were nominally separate, but actually part of the same organization, uh, there are some hints that they may have bid up prices on each other's assets in a way that concealed their true lack of value. And the other, which I think is perhaps more interesting and more important for crypto long-term, is their use of what has been called low-flow, high, fully diluted value token. A lot of uh, projects that FTX itself launched, like Serum, like uh, Oxygen, there are others that are escaping, escaping me right now. They sold small portions and then marked their entire balance to the implied value of those very small portions that had been sold, which is related to some of what Enron was doing in terms of booking revenue before it actually arrived in the bank. So there are a lot of other parallels, including the fact that the guy restructuring FTX uh, actually worked on Enron, but those are some big ones and they really have to do with accounting fraud or the crypto equivalents of accounting fraud.
4: Yeah, good piece. Definitely check it out. Uh, read it in full if you're watching this now. But yeah, I think the echoes to Enron are certainly remarkable, right? It's a sort of 20-year nostalgia cycle, and we needed some big-time corporate fraud to get us back into that cycle. So we are looking at that. A lot of weird similarities. Also just, uh, you know, we, we note the, uh, the stadium rights naming deals that both of these firms ended up having. Mm-hmm. Enron down in Houston and FTX down in Miami. So the echoes are certainly there. Made all the more uh, poignant by the fact that again, J.J. Ray the Third is involved and was involved in both of these things. In his first day declaration yesterday, uh, you know, I think the thing that many people latched onto was the fact that, in all my years, and even through Enron, this is worse. And I think that stood out yeah. as something that uh, was a remarkable statement about just uh, the mess that FTX's finances seem to currently be in. So yeah, I think the parallels are eerily present. And certainly worth remarking upon, bad business practices, shady dealings, creative accounting happens in crypto, happens in energy, probably happens in a lot of different spheres of the economy. Jen, what are your thoughts?
2: I can't forget that statement by John J. Ray III that basically said, you know, I've seen some things and I've never seen things this bad. It just makes me ask a bunch of rhetorical questions like, why does this keep happening? Why do we allow history to repeat itself like this? And why are we not learning when it comes to due diligence? Did all of these VCs and all of these large brands that went into these sponsorship deals and partnerships with FTX not do the right due diligence or were the documents doctored? I don't know, David, if you have more information there or thoughts just from a historical perspective as to why we see this time and time again.
3: Well, the the real common thread in terms of the due diligence part of the equation is that Both Enron and FTX kind of hyped themselves. Um, And, you know, I don't know that much about the context for for Enron, but I think it was somewhat similar. But we also have been in this fundraising environment where basically founders get to call the shots. And our understanding at this point is that Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX and Alameda was very firm about saying, you know, venture capitalists give us money, no strings attached you basically don't get to look at anything um, and you have no input to any of my decision. And that's, you know, not a normal condition for venture capital um, outside of, you know, the last 10 years, perhaps, when we had this zero interest rate environment. So that's one aspect of it. The other thing I would say that we can draw from the Enron comparison is just to emphasize that this was much more about accounting fraud Large than it was about crypto itself per se, and I think that that's something I would want people to really take away. Um, They could have been trading magic beans. They could have been energy. The same controls that failed would have created the the same situation. So uh, I I think that it is really a a lesson for uh, venture capitalists, especially as we now are in a different environment. Due diligence is going to be important in a in a way that I think people have just simply forgotten for the last few years.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was something just remarkably, you know, FTX Ventures had Amy Wu at the time. She has since left. But, you know, she was speaking at Solana's Breakpoint Conference in Lisbon saying that, hey, during the bull cycle, venture capital firms were not doing their due diligence. And then about a week later, of course, everything came tumbling down. I think there is a lot of uh, soul searching within the VC sector currently. Those who uh, have endured losses or have funds stuck on FTX. And those maybe didn't participate and have the ability to say, no, we, we saw something fishy. It is enabling a little bit of a comeback tour for the Suzu's and Kyle Davies's of the world, which is a bit weird. But uh, it is something that I think the VC world is going to have to reckon with because everyone from Temasek on down uh, was exposed to this firm and is you know, writing off these investments, which were significant in many cases. So hopefully the DD uh, continues and it's just not um, you know, empty noise about people saying how next time they're going to do it right. Because yeah, really getting in and figuring out what's going on, I think is something that is pretty remarkable that didn't really happen earlier in the story of FTX. So pretty crazy. Uh, Jen, kicking it to you for your last thoughts on this one.
2: Yeah, I think I just want to reiterate David's point. You know, I think there are some mainstream headlines and people who don't operate in the space every day, like we do, who are really taking this way away as a crypto is bad story or crypto is a Ponzi scheme story. And that's not what it is. This is a poor business practice, poor accounting practice story. And I just think it's important every time we talk about this to just reiterate that for the audience. There were a lot of shady things going on behind the scenes that had nothing to do with crypto and that are already heavily regulated and potentially illegal. And so I just would like to point that out. David, I think I saw your hand go up. So I'm going to give it to you for the last thought since this was your story. And then I'll, I'll take us to our second story.
3: Like to sort of emphasize that last point in one more way. We also know this because Sam Bankman Fried has explicitly said that his interest in crypto was only because it was a useful way to make money as a trader. We also can look at like Three Arrows Capital. Those guys were not crypto, but they were uh, Forex traders that decided to get into crypto. So there's a narrative here around finance people and their role in all of this that uh, I'm sure we will expand upon at a later date. But Jen, I believe you have the next story.
2: All right. So we're going to talk about the regulatory aspect of all of this and go to the Securities Commission of the Bahamas. So they announced on Thursday that they ordered the contents of FTX's crypto wallets be transferred to government-controlled wallets on the previous Saturday. The press release said that it made the order under existing authorities that allow for the government to take action if it needs to protect clients or their funds. Now, there are a few things that people have questions about when it comes to this announcement, one of them being why the announcement was made five days after the action allegedly took place. David, I'm going to kick it off to you for initial thoughts. What do you make of all of this kind of confusion, it really seems, between FTX and the regulators in the Bahamas?
3: Well, I I think that uh, there are two things here. I'm I'm not sure about confusion well, <laughs> I mean, I think that FTX and the regulators in the Bahamas are probably confused about a lot of things at this point. the confusion from the outside that is I think quite striking, which is as you pointed out, it seems like we currently don't know if the movements that were identified as a hack might have actually been this um ordered withdrawal um It seems unlikely because those uh those hack transfers were labeled with uh, obscenities and slurs against FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, but it seems not impossible. Um, The second thing I would point out here, uh, I don't know uh, if we know exactly what assets were transferred, but my understanding, I think, is that at least some of them were were Ethereum-based assets. And this really brings us back to something that we were discussing a month or two ago, having to do with Ethereum and censorship, which, Remember, one of the major pivots for uh, censorship on Ethereum uh, is the OFAC list, which is maintained primarily, if not exclusively, by the United States. And what the bankruptcy proceedings are leading us towards is a potential conflict between where the Bahamian authorities and the U.S. authorities believe those assets should end up. And if we have a censored chain where the U.S. controls those censorship orders, That makes it a pretty uneven conflict between these two bodies. I think highlights in some ways the importance of keeping these chains neutral rather than making them subject to unilateral legal orders that can come from a particular government. Um, So so I think that's, that's a really interesting implication of this case right now.
4: I'm just going to say, I'm here for the international intrigue. There is a lot of spicy stuff going on, especially from the new CEO of FTX, who has made it clear that he does not trust the regulators in the Bahamas to properly host this thing, right? These proceedings are going to be hosted in a venue. Maybe it's going to be the Bahamas. Maybe it's going to be Delaware. The current leadership of FTX is strongly angling for Delaware and is sort of casting aspersions on whether or not this can happen in a um, non-corrupt way in the Bahamas. We saw it in the in the first aid declaration. We saw it in a subsequent filing yesterday. And now we're sort of seeing this turf war emerge over who is going to host the bankruptcy proceedings. And there's some, you know, accusations in the Ray statement that suggests that he is not comfortable, nor does he know the connections that SBF may have With regulators and government officials in the bahamas and i think the government in the bahamas has responded to the best of its ability and it's coming out pretty loudly saying hey how dare you cast aspersions but that to me i think is the international intrigue angle that's going to be really interesting if any additional wrongdoing is uh uncovered as it relates to the bahamas role in this whole thing in the immediate wind down of ftx but david saw your hand giving it to you
3: yeah and with regard to that i mean there's some important context here which is why is FTX located in the Bahamas in the first place? Right, because the Bahamas, like a lot of sort of small island nations, let's say, have decided that one good way for them to drive uh, income for their tax base is to offer preferential business environments for particularly finance organizations. So their interests doesn't necessarily lie as regulators with getting the maximum value for creditors. Uh, sent, you know, out of the country. Frankly, they may have some bias towards moves that would benefit uh, the the FTX organization as it exists now or its former administrators. And so they're really kind of having to balance on a knife's edge. I imagine between doing a procedure that maintains their reputation as a positive business environment for these people, which is to say, to make it more explicit, an environment where you can be lightly regulated versus creating an international incident, it seems like is something that they're really kind of flirting with here. So it's a, it really is global geopolitics, again, cropping up in crypto.
2: I think you both hit it right on the head. This jurisdictional fight was even hinted at in that press release by the Bahamas regulator. I just can't believe how many different <laughs> areas of the world of journalism, of politics that this story is touching. And I think it's just going to continue to snowball. So hang on to the rates. Zach, what do you got for last thoughts?
4: I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to believe that Crypto Bahamas, the event that was organized by FTX was held in April, mm-hmm. right? And that featured famously Bill Clinton and Tony Blair in conversation with Sam Beckman-Fried on stage. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some chatter uh, that I've seen in certain channels that there may be another Crypto Bahamas in 2023. Obviously, with different sponsorships and a bit of a bit of different leadership salt was the co-presenter of that conference which uh is linked to anthony scaramucci who has also been burned pretty badly by this thing but i wonder what the vibe will be at crypto bahamas 2023 the 2022 vibe was rather immaculate but if this comes to pass Mm -hmm. that will be quite the uh quite the sophomore iteration of that event i'm curious to see if it actually happens anyway that's it for this one keep an eye on this story it's gonna be interesting to see if these hearings ultimately get heard in Nassau or in Wilmington. Crazy times. All right, stick with us. We're gonna take a quick break. After the break, we're gonna talk about privacy, auditability, on-chain transparency, trade-offs, ways to make it work. We're gonna be joined by a special guest from The Secret Network, Torbear. Stick with us, it's The Hash. Thanks.
0: So here's a big question. What's the most important thing about crypto? It's not transactions per second, it's not convenience, and it's not even smart contracts. It's decentralization to achieve censorship resistance so we can all be free. Minima is a new layer one blockchain designed to run in full on a smartphone so that anyone can participate in building Minima's decentralized network as an equal. Join over 300,000 Minima node runners on the incentive program today to start earning Minima every day until mainnet launch. Get started at Minima.global. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe and efficient way to send money around the globe. Have you ever tried creating an NFT? Creators usually face limitations from existing marketplaces and tools or are hindered by complex coding requirements if they try to do it themselves. Well, those days are over. Smart Mint by Pastel Network is a free to use and no code platform that makes minting NFTs easier than ever. Create custom NFT drops and collections across ecosystems like Ethereum and Polygon, while also having the flexibility to add customized features and manage existing creations with just a few clicks. Get started today for free at smartmint.pastel.network.
4: Hey there. Welcome back to the Hash on CoinDesk TV. Thanks for joining us and happy Friday. Now, just a few days ago, we were talking about privacy and some implications around that as it relates to this impending legislation in the EU. And I was out here standing for good old fashioned open public ledgers. And I was trying to make the case that they provide the transparency. An auditability that makes crypto, the possibility of self-regulation in crypto real. Right. So I went out there and I said this thing and I was like, all right, let me just, you know, put on my hat for just, you know, straight up transparency. And I expressed some, you know, some some skepticism about the, the role of privacy coins and the uh, privacy preserving approaches that ultimately to me may hinder the ability of the crypto industry to advance its cause in DC and other global capitals. So, joining us right now is Tor Bear. He is a co-founder of the Secret Network, which is a privacy preserving blockchain network that does all sorts of good stuff and he is kind enough to join us today. Tor, how are you
1: doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Guys, I wore my privacy hat to match your transparency hat, so I'm ready to go.
4: <laughs> as pictured here, my transparency hat, highly transparent. So, yeah, let's do this thing. Yes. So, yeah, as I mentioned, I was out here standing for transparency and I think, you know, There's lots of people in the space who believe that privacy-preserving technologies are critical for the future of our online lives. The thing I wanted to ask you is, how do we have the best of both worlds, right? Where we have the transparency, the auditability of these public chains, while also preserving our financial privacy. Um, That's my question to you. Are there hybrid approaches? Is there a way that we can have the best of both worlds? Or is it indeed this black and white
1: conversation? It's never black and white. Nothing is ever black and white, fortunately. And when it comes to privacy, we already have in the Web2 world, in our legacy web world, we've had an awakening around the importance of privacy. The only thing people don't really understand in the Web3 space is that there's plenty of people who care about having both the ability to make things public and the ability to make things private, but only the privacy by default version of that approach works. Because when you start public, Making it private again is impossible. When you start private, you can always choose to reveal it. So that idea of selectively revealing data in certain circumstances to certain people, when I throw on my privacy hat, it's not a hat that says privacy all of the time at all costs. It's a hat that says, I at least want even the option. And only the private by default approach is what gives you that option of auditability and privacy because the transparent, the radical transparency approach to blockchains that we've started with That doesn't give you choice. I really think it's an issue of choice, not just privacy.
4: Gotcha. So I think in times of sort of crypto shenanigans, hacks, exploits, stuff that's being transferred on chain, you often hear crypto advocates say, hey, we can see what's happening. And oftentimes, this is more traceable than legacy technologies, aka cash. And that is something I think that has resonated strongly with regulators the world over. Okay, if this helps us in fighting financial crime... Maybe there is a place for this thing and we shouldn't regulate it out of existence. I guess my question is, do you think privacy-preserving technologies compromise that narrative? Or is there a way to advance that narrative while also standing up for the right to privacy?
1: I think what we're trying to build in the Web3 space isn't just about radical transparency in technology because you can have auditability without radical transparency. You, you can have, like, for example, with Secret Network, we've implemented viewing keys where you can always choose to share balances with an accountant or with a family member in the event of something occurring, you can then reveal balances, send balances. It's all fully programmable. And uh, you have control over who sees the data, even yourself. It doesn't mean the data is impossible to share. And again, it goes back to that choice and consent model. There is a use case specifically for radically transparent and decentralized technologies. And a lot of that does have to do with things where you want perfect information for every single player in the system, any actor, any observer. But that's the minority, the vast minority of systems in the world. Usually we have systems where a few people should have some kind of privileged access. Other people should have another level of privileged access. It's that level of programmability and customizability that the public by default foundation of decentralized tech doesn't allow for. But you can have decentralized tech. You can have decentralized cryptocurrencies and privacy-preserving capabilities that still allow for auditability now you're starting to serve hundreds or thousands of use cases in addition. And I think those are all use cases that still governments and enterprises worldwide care about and use on a daily
3: basis. So Tor, can we talk just a bit about, by the way, hi, can we talk just a bit about specific technologies, right? So viewing keys sounds straightforward enough. You distribute those to people who you want, but another one that comes up quite a bit when we're talking about crypto and privacy is uh, zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, so, I mean, can you speak to the role of, of that technology in being able to verify information without revealing it?
1: Yeah. We publish a lot of information from Secret about all of the different privacies, technologies that have been explored, not just in the crypto space, but for you know decades beforehand. So you have things like zero-knowledge proofs, you have things like multi-party computation, fully homomorphic and Christian, you have hardware-based privacy technologies that let you do secure computation inside of trusted enclaves. There's, there's really a ton. So unfortunately, in the crypto space, sometimes we just meme things, right? We, and, and so ZK mm. has become more of a meme than anything else. In fact, among the privacy technologies, I would say ZK and zero knowledge stuff has a lot more to do with scalability than it ever does with privacy. So people have this assumption that it's like, we're going to have blockchain technology we're going to slap a zero knowledge proof on it, and suddenly all of our problems are solved. And it's just not true. Uh, but ZKPs are really important for solving specific privacy use cases, such as you know the full set of information and you want to selectively reveal your knowledge of a piece of that information. But zero knowledge proofs, for example, are not very good at things like you have data from 17 different data sources. You need to be able to compare that data privately, come to a conclusion about that data, report that conclusion without ever revealing the data to each of the component parties involved in the computation. So ZKPs are super important, but we need to understand these privacy technologies and how they're being implemented in blockchain systems. That's a, that's a very large space that goes well beyond ZK, and Secret's exploring a lot of things beyond ZK. It's, it's actually not our focus. We, we do everything else. Uh, from FHE to TEEs, but it's definitely going to be part of the conversation. And that's where a lot of the innovation has been concentrated for the past couple of years.
2: Hey, Tor, Jen here. Okay, so I know that Secret Network is really focused on user experience and making this all really easy, right? In the current crypto climate where everyone is just super focused on price volatility, super focused on the industry kind of imploding, how do you access that audience and start to explain something that is is pretty complicated if you haven't operated in the space?
1: Uh, usually I DM Coindesk journalists until they let me explain <laughs> it on their show. And <laughs> uh, here you are. We, we d- and here we are. <laughs> but yes, we, we do a lot of education. Uh, we're going to be down in Miami for Decentral at the end of the month. We were at conferences like Masari earlier this year uh, where the Zcash team was also present. Fortunately, we're not alone. We're, we're actually recent members of the Universal Privacy Alliance. Uh, Zcash is a member there as, as well. So is Nim. so is Mantis or a number of other projects like Aztec. Because the privacy narrative is, I mean, the short-term stuff is like FTX implodes. There were some fraudsters. They got New York Times headlines that are fawning. And that's all going to be eventually old news. But if you ban privacy technologies today, the Tornado Cash developer still sitting uncharged in a jail cell in Europe. Mm. That's the really important news. So we just try to keep the focus there. All of us together, even though we're building, all of us, privacy technologies, and really those are more complementary than competitive because we're all on the same team that for web three to actually serve the purpose we wanted it to human empowerment globally, we do need privacy at its core, we do need these private by default systems. So we're all motivated to sort of keep the public conversation going with our focus on those long term issues, so that we don't all just get lost in the cool headlines or Twitter melting down and Elon closing the cafeteria. It's always Yeah, that always happens. But you know, we're always going to be there reminding people, hey, by the way, If you don't want to lose all of your human rights, if if we weren't the kinds of people fighting for that, we wouldn't even have cryptography on our on our messages anymore. So I'm glad that there's people fighting this fight way before I did, and I'm glad I can continue it now.
4: Gotcha. So one minute left, Tor, and I definitely want to close it on the regulatory conversation. This was brought up in conversation about uh, you know a leaked draft of, of potentially pending regulations in the EU, whether it's through the alliance you just mentioned or other privacy advocates. What's the what's the regulatory story that you are trying to Uh, to get out there? Are you saying, hey, we're cypherpunks, forget the state? Or are you saying, hey, this can work in a way that gives us the optionality of these tools going forward in a regulated and compliant way?
1: Yeah, it's certainly not the former. I would hesitate to say that it's also the latter where we're just like, let's let regulators tell us what to do. I mean, really what we want to do is educate the regulators and they have a perspective and we as technologists have a perspective and hopefully we get to the right answers. The wrong way to do that is to do regulation by enforcement. The right way to do it is to have public conversations and understand the fundamental issues. So as we get in touch with regulators and we say, hey, at least do you understand the difference between transactional privacy coins, like you know, Monero is a transactional privacy coin, or something like Secret, which is smart contract privacy, meaning the, the coin for the network is public, but the applications are privacy-preserving, because that's the kind of technology that governments actually like. We just had a team win a Department of Defense hackathon, building on Secret." Clearly, governments like the idea of being able to do private data sharing in decentralized contexts where they can have some guarantee of security. What they don't necessarily like is being responsible for North Korea's funding of their nuclear program. So having that open conversation and building the tech and showing the tech live on mainnet that's the way that we educate regulators. They do tend to be pretty good listeners, but I don't take anything for granted. And until uh, our tornado cash devs are out of prison, I'm certainly not going to expect a good outcome unless we fight.
4: Gotcha. Well, Tor, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much uh, for joining us here on The Hash. We're going to wrap the show on that note, send everybody into the weekend. Thank you so much. I'm Zach. That's Jen. That's David. We will talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network.